Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting Lockstala Saga on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy, and this is our eighth episode on Lockstala Saga. It is, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But uh, before we do that, is there anything you want to share with the class? Hmm. Uh, did uh, one of us get a new dog we need to talk about? I think we're usually <laughs> announcing new dogs here. Is that what we do in the uh, beginnings uh, of episodes? I hope not. Between the two of us, we're at, uh, what, five kids and six dogs. That seems like plenty. It's sufficient. Although most of my kids don't even live here anymore, so what is it? That's matter? fair. That's fair. Good for you. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm talking about any dogs. Uh, any uh, any recent publishing news you might want to mention. Ah, yes, yes. Um, as most of you no doubt already know, I spent last spring and early summer working on a graphic novel adaptation of Erbigisaga or Erbigisaga or Erbigisaga. Remember that troubles Does we the had pronunciation with that problem get addressed in the graphic novel. It doesn't, no. No, although it's it's written in such a way on the cover that, you know, most people will be very confused, I think. Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, did this with uh, Jay Borello and uh, Andrew Valkoskis uh, all last, you know, the beginning of the year, I guess. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I had no idea what I was doing when Andrew first invited me to adapt <laughs> and write the project. But uh, I'm really pleased with how it came out. I think it, it's pretty cool. And mm. uh, I did my best to try to condense everything to the page count that I was given. I yeah, thought it was a rather stingy page count, but uh, I, I had to convince Andrew to give me like 10 more pages. So we crossed into the 50s, um, uh-huh. which made it slightly more expensive. But, you know, <laughs> I had to squeeze just a little more in, John. There's I understand. I understand. Yeah. It's, uh, the sagas are not, uh, not known for their brevity. Mm-mm. No, no. And uh, we did, I think, manage to tell most of the story, but not all of the story. You, if Those of you who are familiar with uh, Arabic Saga, you're going gonna, you're gonna to notice the spots there where we had to, had to condense and squeeze and cut. But uh, I promise you all the important parts are there. And uh, if you're a fan of Saga thing, you're going to really enjoy this retelling of Arabic Saga. So there's uh, poop rocks and ghost seals galore. Oh yeah, yes, yes. Thorgunas and and uh, you know silly uh, oxtails or weird tails mm-hmm. coming out of the fish closet, all kinds Excellent. of stuff in there. Uh, and if somebody wants to see a book full of these things, uh, how would they go about getting a copy? That's a good question. Um, it was part of a massive Kickstarter bundle for Fate of the Norns, which is I think why Andrew brought me on. Honestly, there was so much mm-hmm. in that bundle for him to keep track of. I don't know how he possibly could have balanced writing our biggest saga and all of those other responsibilities. Uh, so uh, I'm pretty sure you can get a hard copy still through fateofthenorns.com slash store if you want to. Um, and for some reason, it pops up on walmart.com and barnesandnoble.com. Um, I think you said you ordered one from Barnes & Noble, Yeah, that's Noble, where I got right? mine, yeah. I have no idea how or why that happened and why it's those two places <laughs> and not like Amazon or other places, but uh, but there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, Drive Through Comics uh, did have it in hard copy, but now it seems to be only a watermark PDF. Uh, so I'm wondering if they're sold out. I don't really know what, hmm. what the deal is. That's not my side of the business, John. I mean, sold um, out is always a good problem, I guess. I mean, I'm making assumptions here, but uh, the watermark PDF through them is only $10, which is hey. a steal considering how much the printed version costs. So go out there and <laughs> grab yourself a watermark copy if you want. Are you essentially just encouraging people to steal this book? No, I'm saying you can pay $10 and have one with a, a watermark over the top of each page, but you can still read it. That's very exciting. Uh, but if you're well, a collector, you're going to want the hard copy. This is very exciting. It's a fantastic piece of work. It is. Uh, so, John, tell me, when is your adaptation of Ref the Sly coming out? I'm looking forward to seeing that. <laughs> Tuesday. Oh, good for you. No, uh, I don't know. Uh, I have to find someone to draw it first. My uh, 
My yeah. talents lie in lands far from the visual arts. Yeah, that uh, is the problem. Yeah. Anyway, excellent work. Uh, so, how about this year, Laxdala Saga? Ah, yes. Yes. The adventure continues. So, uh, where did we leave off in our story? It's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah. I'm so glad you asked. Last time on Saga Thing. Headline. There goes the neighborhood. A family of four Hebridean sorcerers are on the move in Iceland. The family summons a sorcerer storm that destroys a ship bearing several Loxodal socialites. Among the victims is Thord and Gunnarsson, the second husband of Gudrun Osvastotter. The Hebrideans eventually settle on land owned by Thor the Koskelson, giving him four fine stallions in exchange for a place to live. But it's not long before both sorcerers and steeds stir up trouble. It's the horse's turn first, as a local blowhard named Eldgrim makes an offer to take the stallions off Thorlek's hands for a pretty penny. But when Thorlek tells him no dice, Eldgrim makes a bolder play by trying to steal the quartet of quadrupeds. Thorlek's octogenarian uncle, Hrut, intervenes in a timely fashion, saving the horses and fatally ending Eldgrim's brief career in crime. Everyone's impressed by the manner in which Hrut's geriatric skills pay the bills. Everyone, that is, except Thorlek, who's humiliated by the old man fighting on his behalf while he's sleeping in bed. The fuming Thorlek blunders by asking the Hebridean sorcerers to pay Hrut back for embarrassing him. They take their commission too far when their menacing magics lure and kill Hrut's young son. After a lifetime of peacekeeping, Hrut finally goes to war, catching and killing all four sorcerers, but not before one of them curses the land and another blights a hillside with his fiery gaze. <laughs> Olaf Askelson, the clan's head honcho, forces Thorlik to leave Iceland to avoid a full-on feud within the family. An uneasy peace returns to Loxodal. Things are a little too peaceful for the restless young blood of local lads Kjartan Olafsson and Botley Thorlikson, who begin planning a voyage to Norway to test their fortunes and their fortitude. In this episode, we'll follow the Foster brothers on their travels as they stumble into the world of political and religious changes in the North. And how will the separation from home affect the budding romance between Gudrun and Kjartan? Find out this time in... Laxdala Saga, chapters 40 to 43. Oh, that's not very far. Uh, another one where we're only going to get through four chapters. Well, these are big chapters, John, and they're important chapters, and I think people are going to just have to get used to us only going through a couple chapters, because <laughs> that's what we do now. Uh-huh. Uh, but we are finally going to spend some time with Kjartan and Botley, allegedly two of our main protagonists. Well, there's been a lot of build-up to get here, but it's all coming together now. Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot going on with these two. Uh, they're best friends, they're cousins, they're foster brothers, and they spend nearly all their time with each other. And now they're planning to travel overseas as a team. I'm sure it's going to go swimmingly. Swimmingly, uh-huh. you say? Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other side of the ledger, uh, Kjartan's father, Olaf Peacock, has just forced Botley's father, Thorlik, into exile. Right After he sicked the Hebridean sorcerers on Hrot's household. Yeah. So far, that doesn't seem to be a problem. But these guys are also the subject of several predictions and curses that say Botley will eventually kill Kjartan even though Kjartan is the stronger warrior. Well, that's all just rumor and superstition. It's pretty widespread rumor, though. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a widespread rumor that shows up at least twice or three times in in one episode of this <laughs> podcast. Now, personally, I refuse to participate in the spreading of malicious gossip. I'm not you going to just be a part did. of it. You literally you, just did. On the other hand, I know you like to. So are you ready uh, to catch up with this dynamic duo and see what they get up to in Norway? Let's go. Part 25. Kjartan, Kjartan, over the bounding main. Or... An anecdote of two blokes sowing oats as they tote goods afloat on a long boat. Hmm. Now I, 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 now that I've heard the second part of that, I'm really glad I cut you off when you tried to do it at the end of last episode. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so we are we're really deep in the weeds now, aren't we? Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, the deaths of the Hebrideans last time marked the end of a narrative chapter, and so now the saga is going to turn to introducing a few new faces. And then, finally, gets fully invested in the adventures of Kjartan Olofsson, Botli Thorlikson, and Gudrun Olsvi's daughter. Well, I mean, Gudrun's already married and lost two husbands. I don't think we can say that she's been completely idle. No, no, she's been rather active. Uh, but we're forced to keep interrupting her story with other pieces of the narrative because that's what this saga does. Right. Um, like now, for instance, when we have to bring some new people into the story again, we've got to interrupt what we're just setting up to start so that we can introduce a whole bunch of mm-hmm. new people. I mean, that's how some of these longer sagas work, right? But besides, there aren't yeah. too many introductions this time. The main new faces are the family of Askir Scatterbrain of Vidadal. Yeah, and we've met Askir before uh, a few times, actually. He was mm-hmm. he was in Gretir's saga, and um, I think he was in Vatenstala Vat saga as yeah. well. Yeah, he's like an old that. pal. Uh, mm-hmm. But his kids, Marty. We're going to meet his kids now. Uh, Askir has three sons, Alvin, Thorvald, and Kalf. He also has two daughters named Hrefna and Thurid. The important ones for our purposes are Kalf and Hrefna. Uh, Yes. Kalf is a ship owner and a mighty sailing man. A skipper, brave and sure. Sure. Uh, And it's going to be a while before Hrefna really gets her moment in this saga. Like, not in this episode. Uh, for now, just know that she's out there, right? That that Kalf has mm-hmm. this sister, Hrefna, who has kind of a low-key rivalry with Gudrun Oswif's daughter. So you're saying that Gudrun Oswif's daughter has a low-key rivalry with Hrefna. Other way around. I'm not sure Gudrun knows Hrefna exists. <laughs> oh, so Hrefna knows Gudrun exists, and she's got a low-key rivalry with her. Right. But we don't know anything about it. We yes. just need to keep that in mind. Right. Okay. Well, we also are going to meet Lambi Thorbjarnason, the much younger half-brother of Olaf Peacock. Right. And we mentioned this guy a couple of episodes ago. This is the baby brother who was born while Olaf was visiting his grandfather in Ireland. Wow. Uh, I completely forgot about that, if I'm being honest with you, John. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay. So, baby brothers all grown up because time's been passing. Yeah. Uh, so, Melkorka, the Irish princess turned slave, turned mother and landowner, has died, as has her husband, Thorbjorn Pockmark. Mm-hmm. Lambi, their son, now runs their farm and has friendly relations with Olaf Peacock and his family. Mm-hmm. And Lambi's grown up to be a bold fighter and a successful farmer. And Olaf really values their friendship. So, Lambi. Right. Right. Uh, so, Lambi uh, is also uncle to Kjartan Olofsson. But not to Botley Thorlikson. Just keep that tucked away somewhere. Uh, for now, all is well on the farm, and Botley doesn't seem to have been phased much by his father's semi-voluntary exile at his foster father's urging. Yeah, he's surprisingly okay with it. I guess things could have turned out much worse. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Kjartan and Botley are now strap- strapping young men, 
They enjoy all the pleasures of young men. They play sports, practice fighting, go to the hot springs, work on Olaf's farm, good healthy activities. Yeah, you sound like a 1950s educational film about rural America. <laughs> Exercise, lots of fresh air, and plenty of good food and wholesome milk keep Carton and Butley in the pink of health. I suppose I did. Yes, look, there we see Carton and Butley coming down to the hot springs for a good time. <laughs> Uh, but the saga is setting up all this wholesomeness for a reason. Yeah, they uh, they want to destroy it later. Well, it's not a tragedy if nothing sad happens. That's uh, true. Anyway, their trips to the hot springs often involve running into Gudrun, who has recently been mm. widowed uh, and is now uh, single for what well, she's she's for the second time now. Yeah, she's had a full life already, mm-hmm. or a full quarter of a life. Uh, she may be eighteen <laughs> at this point, if we're really hey, being honest. I mean, it's a it's a little ridiculous, but hey. You get a prophecy you're going to outlive four husbands. You better get started early. <laughs> no moss growing under her feet, that's for sure. Right. So Kjartan has decided that he likes well, to... Well, there, there's there's a bit of moss growing on some of her husbands, though. I just want to oh, too soon. point that out. Too soon. There. Um, Kjartan and Gudrun ta- have taken a liking to each other, uh, and he starts spending more and more time talking to her. It's well mm-hmm. worth it, since everyone agrees that Gudrun is intelligent, clever with wordplay and conversation... And is one of the best-looking women in the district. Uh, Gudrun's having a good time as well, because Kjartan is big, handsome, intelligent, and accomplished. They'll have beautiful Ubermensch babies together, won't they? <laughs> well, I mean, that's the that's the public opinion, really. People in the district think they're well-suited to one another, and the rumor mill starts talking about their relationship. Yeah. Their fathers, Olaf Peacock and Olsvif, are also really good friends and often visit and talk together. So everything seems perfectly set up for a quick proposal and a marriage. But then one day, when they're alone together, Olaf tells Kjartan, uh, You know, I don't know why, but your visits to Guthrun at the Hot Springs make me uneasy. I know she's the worthiest match for you in the area, but I can't shake the feeling that our dealings with her family will not turn out well. Although, I wouldn't make a prediction of it. Well... I'll do my best not to go against your wishes, father, but I expect things will turn out better than you think. <laughs> he doesn't know anything about these prophecies, I guess. <laughs> well, no, his father said well, it wasn't going to be a prophecy. He's not making a prediction. Well, I mean, Gudrun certainly knows the prophecy, so I would be <laughs> Yeah, but she's not advertising. Of, well, why would you, right? I mean, <laughs> exactly. She's trying to get a husband to kill so she can get to number four. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, what does Kjartan doing his best not to go against his father's wishes look like exactly? Uh, it, it looks a lot like Kjartan continuing to court Gudrun exactly the same way he was doing before there over the go. course of an entire year. Uh, Kids. Yeah, he and Butley keep going to the hot spring, Gudrun keeps meeting them there, and Kjartan and Gudrun keep chatting while they bathe. So he doesn't take his father too seriously. Well, maybe. Maybe he meant it, but the best he could do turned out to be pretty bad. <laughs> he, he is a young man in love, or at least in serious like. It's hard to think straight in those circumstances. Oh, you're such a romantic. Yeah, famous for it. Anyway, yeah. things carry on like this <laughs> yes. until the following summer, when Kjartan and Butley travel to Borgerfjord to spend time with Kjartan's uncle, Thorsten Ailson. Yes. Remember that Kjartan's mother is Thorgeir Ail's daughter, uh, the favorite of Ail Scott the Grimson's surviving children. Mm-hmm. Ail's relationship with Thorstein is a little rockier, but that's no reason for nephew Kjartan not to stop by. Yeah, and at first it seems like a simple social visit, but then it turns out that Kjartan is interested in another of Thorstein's guests. 
Kalf Asgerson, the skipper. The mighty skipper. Mm-hmm. Kjartan wants to sail the seas with the mighty Kalf Asgerson. Yeah, what Kjartan wants to do is make a name for himself in the court of Earl Hauken in Norway. But yeah. As a young Icelanders want to do. As yes. one does. Uh, he only tells his uncle that, I want to go on a journey abroad and buy a half share in Kalf's ship to do it. Now, Thorstein is a bit hesitant. I, I know Kalf to be a decent man, but, uh, oh, he should have a little graveliness because of uh, his But he is father, a right? son, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I know Kalf to be a decent man, but it seems a shame for you to want to go abroad and learn foreign ways. For your kinsman, <laughs> a great... Wait, you, it's a little too Western, huh? That's, that's It's an unfortunate accent, given that he's now railing against learning foreign ways. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, Ale had kind of that draw, though, didn't Sure. I know Kalf to be a decent man, but it seems a shame for you to want to go abroad and learn foreign ways. For your kinsmen, a great deal will depend on how your journey turns out. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a bit of that Borderfjord suspicion of Norway peeking through. Oh, well, suspicion of everyone, really. Yeah, learn foreign ways. That's, that's <laughs> right. such a 20th century phrase that I was immediately suspicious of the translation. Uh, uh-huh. But the original actually does read Athkana Anara Manasithu, which means to learn other people's ways. Yeah, yeah. Thorstein's just following in the footsteps of his antisocial father and grandfather. True. Uh, this family, Eil Scutlegrimson's family, has had a series of bad experiences with powerful men abroad. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of the men in this family who survive to middle age or beyond are the ones who shun king's courts and overseas adventures. So, Thorsten is almost genetically predisposed to be wary of outsiders. But he's also not one to stand in the way of a young man's dreams. So, he arranges things with Kalf the Skipper and Kjartan and Botli. They're going to Norway. Let's not be hasty. They're going to Norway, but not until the end of summer. Uh, In the meantime, Kjartan has to return home and explain his plan to his parents and to Gudrun. Yeah. Kjartan's father, Olaf, isn't too thrilled with the idea of this trip, but he does say that he won't stand in the way of Kjartan's dreams. Now, keep is in mind that... Is there anything Olaf is enthusiastic about? <laughs> well, remember, Olaf had that, that scary dream where he knows that he's going right. to lose Kjartan at some right. point. Right. Uh, he doesn't fully want to admit it, but certainly he's trying to be very protective sure. of his son. On the other hand, Olaf's cagey enough to realize this whole gallivanting off to Norway plan will at least delay Kjartan's union with Gudrun that he's so worried about. Funny you should mention Gudrun, because she's also a little underwhelmed with this plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, how, how do you want to do this? You've been reading for both of them, so we got to split it up now. Uh, well, I think we're going to get a lot of conversations with each pair of this triangle over the next couple of episodes with uh-huh. Gudrun, Butley, and Kjartan. We're just going to have to roll with it. Uh, you should take Gudrun for now. Oh, I love doing the women's voices. <laughs> All right. Dear God. Well, you were in quite a hurry to make this decision to sail away, Kjartan. Don't get angry about this. Tell you what, I'll do anything in my power that might please you. Don't say things like that, unless you mean it, because I'm going to hold you to it. No, really, what can I do? I want to travel with you this summer. Oh. By taking me, you can make up for your hasty decision, for it's not Iceland that I love. Well... You can't do that. Your brothers are inexperienced and your father's an old man. If you left, there'd be no one to look after things. 
Instead, yeah. promise to wait for me for three years. I have read other sagas, <laughs> and I will promise nothing of the sort. Right. So uh, we're agreed that Kjartan's being a bit of a cad here, right? With well, the, it's, you know. I mean, the waiting suspicious. three years thing, that's a standard engagement practice. He's essentially proposing to Gudrun. Uh, yeah. But he obviously wants to go out and enjoy his adventure without his fiance along for the ride. And so he's saying yeah. whatever he thinks will soothe her while still letting him go off carefree. Uh, definitely, definitely. Um, but, well, it also puts her at risk. And he does make some legitimate points. Sure. You know, her brothers are inexperienced. She's mm-hmm. used to running the farm. Her mm-hmm. father is an old man. And everything could fall apart. If okay. she leaves. And, and he doesn't also, want her to come along. <laughs> that's all true. But the if the farm falls apart and he does intend to marry her, then having her there to run it is an investment in keeping it in good shape. Fair so, point. Uh, but I've also got this I, image in my head of Kjartan showing up at the court of Earl Hauken and saying, Hi, I'm Kjartan Olofsson. This is my girlfriend. Uh, that's <laughs> Nobody goes to the Norwegian court and introduces their fiancé. It's just not the Well, I mean, we thing. haven't seen it, that's for sure. Right. We have not seen that. Uh, but, uh, you know, Kjartan's clearly just kicking the can here like every other mm-hmm. uh, warrior poet that we've <laughs> met <laughs> in the past. Um, he's managed to arrange his trip, but uh, Gudrun's not the sort to wait patiently. And she's also not the sort to forget that he did just break a promise to her. Right. And Gudrun's guarding herself here. One of the standard critical readings of Gudrun is that she's deliberately enigmatic, right? That she doesn't let on what she's thinking. But uh, to quote Daniel Salberg, uh, Gudrun never explicitly expresses her longing for Kjartan. It's the saga that makes it entirely clear. Hmm. Well, she did say, it's not Iceland that I love. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's not direct, but it is right. very strongly implied it what, certainly what is. she means there. It certainly yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, Gudrun's not a woman to let her feelings get in the way if she feels like she's been mistreated. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen her act on that in the past. And in her view, Kjartan has shown a rather cavalier disregard for her. Yeah, it's not a great way to leave things. Uh, But time and tide wait for no Icelander to placate his sort of fiancé. Yeah, I think it's uh, fair to say that Gudrun isn't going to consider herself pledged to Kjartan at this point. No, sure. But... Uh, Kjartan's a young guy, he's handsome and athletic, his dad's rich, he's the great-grandson of the King of Ireland. Honestly, he's the kind of person things just work out for. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guthrie may not think they're engaged, but Kjartan's pretty sure she'll get over it. Now, if I know you, John, mm-hmm. and I know you pretty well, uh, I feel like you might be suggesting Kjartan's a bit of a jerk here. I mean, that's not really an academic position, but... I feel confident I could make an argument that Kjartan embodies a culturally protected position of privilege. How's that? Uh, right? One okay. that makes him somewhat vulnerable to ridicule when others challenge his assumed authority. You you think he's a jerk is what I'm... Well, yeah. Hearing. Yeah, a bit. Yeah. But a jerk with a heart of gold or, uh, okay. or possibly a superficially golden boy with a heart of jerk or something. Okay. Well, for now, it's time to gather Kjartan's men and his goods for the ship. We can skip over some of the details, but the upshot is that Kjartan and Botley, as the son and foster son of a wealthy and prominent man, they're extremely well-stocked with goods to sell in Norway, so Mm -hmm. the Norwegians are going to be happy to see them. 
They also bring a retinue of 10 men with them who are dedicated to Kjartan, and they act as a kind of comitatus, a, a bodyguard entourage that show he's already a man of consequence. And their passage to Norway goes rather smoothly with nothing to report. Right. And then the text of this bit that I really appreciate. Uh, Kjartan and Butley, who at this point in the story, I mean, you know, I'm getting on them a little bit, but they really are just self-impressed rich kids. Uh, mm-hmm. That have bought themselves half a ship. They this is their first kind of venture at, at accomplishing anything, at proving themselves. They dock at Nidaros, where they presumably expect to be hailed as heroes of fortune and destiny, or at the very least, successful merchants. Instead, they dock next to several other good-sized ships owned by Icelanders. One is owned by uh, Bjarni and Thorhall, the sons of Skeggy of Breda. Another is owned Bjarni, by Bjarni, my pebbles. <laughs> okay. Uh, another is owned by Halford the Troublesome Poet, who some of you might remember as the guy who forgot he was supposed to be in love with a woman in Iceland and instead formed a lifelong bromance with Olaf Tryggvason. Uh, <laughs> a third ship is skippered by Brand the Generous, the son of Vermin the Slender and Thorbjörg Stout. Look at all these guys. Wow. <laughs> these kids are barely able to keep up with the company they're keeping. It's amazing. Yeah, and they haven't even gotten to the court yet. Well, there's a bigger problem, though. The presence of Halfred Troublesome Poet should be a hint about where we are in this timeline. Mm -hmm. But in case Kjartan and Boltley haven't kept up on their saga reading, Brand the Generous lives up to his name and gives them the lowdown on what's been happening. Right. So the narrative is now in the mid to late 990s, which means, Mm -hmm. uh, among other things, we're about a century beyond the time of Al the Deep-Minded and the Settlement Generation. But that's not what you're talking about. No, no. If we are about a century away from Owl the Deep-Minded and the Settlement Generation, mm-hmm. well, that means, John, it's conversion time. Yep. Yes, that's right, everyone. We've arrived once more at the time of Norway's conversion to Christianity. Are you ready? Right. Which means that instead of showing up and being welcomed by the pagan-friendly court of Earl Halkin, they've arrived just after Halkin was deposed and then killed by his own servant while hiding in a pigsty. Yes. And the man who deposed him is the very Christian and conversion enthusiast, Olaf Tryggvason. The Olaf Tryggvason. And uh, th- this is fresh news. They arrived to learn of the political and religious turnover in Norway. And they also learned that the other Icelandic ships aren't docked by choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had all intended to leave for Iceland when things went a little sideways. But Olaf is in control of the shoreline and has forbidden any Icelandic ships from sailing unless their owners convert to Christianity. And the town of Nidaros nearby is also resisting the conversion and is also under interdict. And all of this presents a bit of a pickle. Uh, mm-hmm. Kjartan and Butley aren't especially interested in converting either. And when they pull their men, it turns out that none of them like the idea very much. <laughs> It's not just them, either. The other ship's captains hold a meeting with Kalf and Kjartan, and they all agree on solidarity. Mm-hmm. None of them will succumb to the king's conversion blackmail. And for the moment, the town is also determined to face down this Christian king. Right, which actually puts the Icelanders in a double bind. Now that they've sailed into the harbor, they're essentially stuck in a spider's web. They're Icelanders and they're pagan, and so they can't leave, but they also can't present themselves at court. And they're not likely to find friends among the Nidaros population because of the whole Mm -hmm. Icelander thing. And since they've all sworn to each other not to convert, they really have no way to break the stalemate. And that's more or less what they work out. 
They offload their goods, but keep their distance from the king's court and from the town. And for his part, we're told that Olaf Tryggvason hears of their arrival, but doesn't do anything about it apart from maintaining his decision that non-Christian Icelanders simply must stay in dock. Right. It's, it's turning out that going and seeing the world outside of Iceland, it's a bit more complicated than the Foster brothers may have thought. Yeah, I mean, things are so great in Iceland. Yeah. Now uh, Carton and Butley have landed themselves smack in the middle of a regional paradigm shift. Oh, I hate those. I mean, it, it, for me, it depends on whose paradigm is being shifted. Well, maybe Carton and uh, maybe Carton should have listened to Uncle Thorsten. I mean, Thorsten could be wrong. Or listen to Gudrun. Well, yeah. Uh, or his father, you know? Yeah, so uh, we may have retired the foreboding sound effect a little prematurely. <laughs> and and so, on their first trip out of Iceland, Kjartan and Botli are almost immediately trapped on the Norwegian coast. Mm-hmm. Good thing he gave Gudrun three years, huh? Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be making good money, trading the goods that they brought with them, and enjoying the company of other trapped Icelanders, so that's going to be a lot of fun. But Sure. This isn't what they had in mind when they set sail from Laxerdal. And as you say, the world is turning out to be bigger and far more complex than they had expected. And meanwhile, Olaf just keeps ignoring them. You trying to uh, force a little cliffhanger or something so we can switch sections? No, they really have no idea what to do next. Part 26. The King and I. If I is several dozen pagan Icelanders. So, as you'd expect, time weighs heavy on the Icelanders' hands once they've offloaded all their goods. They spend their days lounging around the ships and watching the comings and goings of people in the nearby town of Nidaros. And one day, they see a swimming party heading down to the river. So Kjartan suggests going down as well in search of entertainment. The entertainment of watching people swim in a river. I'm sure they've been making do with less at this point. When, when the Icelanders arrive at the river, they see one swimmer who's clearly outpacing all the others. And Kjartan says, Butley, what do you think of matching your skill against that swimmer there? Oh, I doubt I'm good enough, honestly. Oh, I don't know what's become of your sporting spirit. Fine, I'll challenge him myself then. No, you go ahead. Do as you please. And so Kjartan strips off his cloak and dives into the water. Let the swimming contest begin! Yeah, so to start the contest, he swims over to the other man and pushes his head underwater for several seconds. <laughs> as and one does. As soon as he le- it's, it's apparently he's doing water polo. Uh, as soon as he lets the Norwegian man up to the surface, the man shoves Kjartan under the water and holds him there long enough that Kjartan is getting a little worried by the time he manages to get back up to the surface. Yeah, this is a very different sort of swimming contest than uh, we were expecting, perhaps. Yeah, it's more of a drowning contest, really. Uh, It's fun for the whole family. See who barely survives. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's fun (laughs) for the survivors. Yeah. Didn't we see something similar to this in another saga? Um... I mean, this story is recounted elsewhere in the sagas. Uh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of, because the whole idea of people trying to drown each other <laughs> is very familiar. Right. Oh, no, yeah, no, no, We've definitely seen other people try to drown each other. Yeah, but I mean, in a contest like this, like it's an arranged yeah, thing. Yeah, I don't think it's ever presented as somebody saying, I'm going to challenge him to a swimming contest, and then immediately tries to drown the guy. Yeah, yeah. That's well, a, like that to seems to rough. be a carton a special. Yeah, well, I mean, as we saw in uh, the Northmen, uh, the Icelanders and the the Scandinavians take their games rather seriously, sure and they're do. they're kind of rough. <laughs> so, uh, 
things escalate a bit at this point because mm-hmm. Kjartan and the Norwegian both pull each other underwater at the same time. And this time it's pretty clearly an endurance test. They're under for a long time and Kjartan realizes he's in over his head. Hmm? You, you know, I want to be mad at you, but if you hadn't said that, I would have. Yeah. I mean, you can't. It's, it's right there. It's just sitting there. Yeah. You're supposed yeah. to leave it on the table? Please. Sure. Uh, now, just as Kjartan can't take any more, the two of them break their grips at the same time and come to the surface, gasping for air. Once they're both able to breathe again, the Norwegian asks, Who is this man? I am Kjartan Olofsson. Well, you are a fair swimmer. Are you as able in other skills? Yeah, Kjartan hesitates for a second, and then says, Well... I was reckoned so in Iceland, but it's not as if that makes any difference now. Mm, but it does make a difference who your opponent is. <laughs> and why don't you want to ask me any questions? Because I don't care who you are. Obviously, Kjartan intends that as a <laughs> devastating verbal blow, but uh, the Norwegian just raises his eyebrows and says, Well, you certainly don't lack confidence, Meladio. But I intend to tell you my name anyway. I don't remember my Ladio being in my version of the song. <laughs> I, I, we're, we're working with different translations. <laughs> I, he it definitely says Meladio. I see. He says, uh, but I intend to tell you my name anyway, and who it is that you've been competing with. For you have before you none other than Olaf Trygfusson. And boom goes the dynamite. Yeah. It's even more awkward of a moment when you accidentally try to drown the king while horse playing. <laughs> Well, I would say it's even more awkward when the king got the better view in the contest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kjartan doesn't say anything. He just spins on his heel and walks away. But Olaf stops him. You know, you'll catch your death of cold out here in this chilly air. Please, take this. And he takes off his fur cloak and drapes it over Kjartan's shoulders. Mm, uh, so magnanimous. Athletic, egalitarian. Generous. Yes. We are we're clearly getting the pro Trigvison version of Olaf in this saga. Oh yeah. And there's more to come. I think I think uh Olaf might need to be summoned before we're done here today. Well, could be. If we have forty minutes at the end of the episode. <laughs> given the way the summons have been going. All the time in the All world. The time, it's I not mean, like it's a weeknight and we both have work tomorrow. I know. Uh but for now, Kjartan returns to his group and shows them his fancy new cloak. And when he explains how he got it, they're not pleased. Which, I mean, is not surprising. Culturally, gifts create obligations. And as far as they're concerned, Kjartan has now put himself in the king's debt. Yeah. Which is not a position they want to be in because they're all engaged in a contest of wills with the king over this conversion matter. But it is a nice cloak. A very nice cloak, John. Undoubtedly. A king's cloak. All the more obligation. Yes. And meanwhile... Olaf, still looking like just another Norwegian out for a swim with his mm-hmm. friends, watches Kjartan from a distance. Yeah, he's being inscrutable. I mean, yeah, narratively, that's the point. Mm-hmm. He's keeping the Icelanders and us guessing. So, this little get-together really has no immediate effect on the Icelanders' predicament. They're still trapped in the harbor, and as the weeks turn into months, the fall weather's coming on, and it turns out to be an exceptionally harsh and stormy season. The Icelanders are convinced that the bad weather is probably King Olaf's fault because he's angered sure. the gods by turning his back on them. Yeah, and of course there's a practical consequence to the weather as well. 
no one's going to be sailing out in bad weather, and winter voyages are extremely dangerous. Yeah. So the Icelanders are realizing they're going to be stuck in Norway until spring. At least until spring. Yeah, and, and resentment is building, uh, both in town and at the docks. The, the town breaks first and actually gathers its men together to try and fight Olaf. But he makes a speech to them, probably with a bunch of armed warriors standing behind him, and the town breaks da- backs down. Yeah. They uh, agree to convert, and now the Icelanders are standing alone against the king of Norway. And that means Olaf can devote more resources to dealing with them. He starts sending spies to listen in on their conversations, and it's not long before they overhear a doozy. <laughs> Kjartan and Botley start chatting one evening about the speech that Olaf gave before the town, and Kjartan asks whether Botley is at all interested in the king's new faith, and Botley says, I'm not interested at all. This religion seems weak to me. Did you notice that the king was sort of threatening anyone who wasn't prepared to submit? I think he left no doubt about his intention to use force if he needed to, but... Well, I agree. And no one is going to force me to do anything against my will. Hmm. Not as long as I can stand on my feet and bear a weapon. Spoken like a true Icelander. Only a coward waits. That's right. Only a coward waits to be taken like a lamb from the sheepfold. Another course looks better to me. If a man's got to die anyway, he might as well make a name for himself first. Make a name for himself. I like it. What exactly did you have in mind? Uh, cards on the table? I'm thinking we burn down the king's quarters with him inside. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Well, that's not what I'd call a cowardly plan, Kjartan, but something tells me not much will come of it. The king is favored by destiny and fortune. More importantly, he's guarded both day and night. That was uh, that was me was laughing, by the way, not boldly. <laughs> <laughs> it is ridiculous. It's so over the top. It is. And when we say it out loud like that, it's just... I it know. is hilarious. <laughs> uh, I guess it was to be expected. Even brave men lose their nerve now and then. Now... That's an insult right there. Boltley starts to snap back at Kjartan, but their men separate them and tell them both to cool off. And then the spy fades back into the night and reports back to King Olaf. Now, this... Okay, one of the reasons why we're laughing is this is a, a little out of character for Kjartan. A little out of left field, this whole Kjartan plotting murder. Well, to be fair, we don't really know Kjartan at all. <laughs> He's... That's He's, true. I mean, plotting murder in general is what I had in mind, but what we here's what we do know about Kjartan so far, which agree, I agree is not much. We said an episode or two back that Kjartan is a peacemaker, right? That he carries the banner of of live and let live, just like his father, Olaf Peacock, and his great-uncle Hrut. Suddenly, he's daring his foster brother to burn a house down with the King of Norway inside. Mm-hmm. It seems like a pretty significant reversal. Well, he's under a lot of stress. The The weather outside is frightful. Right. You know. right. right. And the fire is so delightful. Uh, this, <laughs> that's, this is probably the nicest spin we can put on this. Not everyone is willing to give him that benefit of the doubt, but we can. Uh, to take the opposite point of view... Uh, Jonah Lewis Jensen thinks Kjartan's just a spoiled rich kid, right? A, a kid who's throwing a tantrum. Uh, she writes, The affable, beloved Kjartan undergoes a change in personality at this point. In Norway, Kjartan's out of his depth. A much-honored and flattered youth in Iceland, he assumes he will continue to get his way and throws all honor away as soon as the king suggests he changes religion. Wow, that's harsh. I gotta read this article. Yeah, but 
but maybe not inaccurate. Uncharitable, maybe. How's that? Mm. Now, the Icelanders really are under a lot of stress because they are trapped. They are bored and no doubt running out of money and being blackmailed into a change of faith. And all of that is directly or indirectly King Olaf's fault. Pretty directly King Olaf's fault. Well, yeah, but Kjartan is turning out to be just a bit self-indulgent. Between ditching Guthrun and this, there's definitely a less amiable side to his personality. I, I know this is something of a cliche for us at this point, but the ambiguity about these episodes is really built right into the saga. Uh, Paul Schock, um, and this is an older argument, but a good one. Uh, Schock argues that the author of Lockstyler Saga shifts gears in this section. This author is generally atypical of saga writers in that he or she uses interiority to define characters, which is, again, not very common in sagas. Yeah. I want, I want to point out you always accuse me of dropping 50 cent words. Uh, mm. So, interiority. Our author explores the inner nature of the protagonists. Yeah, everyone knows that. Usually, wow. uh, yes. But in this section, this whole trip to Norway, the tone shifts subtly, and we're shut out of those interior motivations. And we said that Olaf's being inscrutable in these scenes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Kjartan is too, right? especially because we can't really understand what he says and does based on what we know of him so far. Right, because we don't know why he's reacting so badly to the king's efforts. He seems to represent this kind of paper Icelandic um, boldness mm-hmm. and independence. And I say paper here because this is Lakstila saga, and it's not about Icelandic independence and uh, bravery right. and all that stuff. Uh, this this whole story, uh, the conversion of Kjartan and Botli, is told in a number of sources, and I think we've probably seen it before. Um, this author is sticking close to the most bare-bones narratives and then fleshing it out with the external detail rather than with interiority as he or she does in other parts of the saga. Yeah, it's interesting. So, so that means, I mean, assuming that the author is doing this deliberately – the author wants us to think about why Kjartan resists mm-hmm. and ultimately why he later submits, spoiler, to Christianity, mm-hmm. right? To think about it, but not necessarily to understand it. Right. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. So um, back to the story. Uh, the next day, King Olaf summons the Icelanders to a meeting and asks whether they've maybe reconsidered converting to Christianity. They have not. No. Uh, but then he leans forward and he asks, and... Which of you was it that wanted to set fire to my house? <laughs> uh, and say what you want about Kjartan, but he's got nerve. He steps forward at once. You probably thought the speaker wouldn't dare to admit to them, but here I stand before you. Ah, I know you and your daring. But I don't think that you're destined to stand over my dead body. You are guilty of ignoring those who would teach you a better faith, not to mention threatening to burn the king who attempts it. But I'm not certain that you meant what you said, and because you have honestly admitted it, I won't put you to death for the offense. I expect that when you do convert, and you will convert, you will keep the faith better than others, just as you are firmer in your resistance than others. That feels like a very literary kind of logic. Well, um, you are an actual English professor, um, and you can't use literary as an insult. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean it pejoratively. I mean literary, as in conforming to the logic of story Mm. rather than to the logic of probability. So in a John sense, then? No, this isn't mine. 
for for one, uh, Terry Pratchett's entire body of work is a meta exploration of this idea. Uh, and for another, I could start getting snotty and quoting Milan Kundera. Oh, well, let's, let's not do that. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but I do think, you know, what Olaf is, is is expressing there is an explanation for what we were just talking about, right? It's right in the saga. It explains why we're seeing Kjartan resist so strongly. Mm-hmm. It's so that we get a sense of his character and how, how firmly he defends what he believes in. So when he does convert to Christianity, he will, in fact, be better than others because we've seen how he reacts to things. So this... But seeing him... My problem with that is that seeing him firmly resist something that he then caves in on, in the long run, doesn't really prove how strong-minded it is. It makes him look sort of petulant and reactionary. I, yeah, I think you're coming at it from a modern storytelling angle, though, and that's not what. Yes. That's not. Yeah, well, that's not what this is. This <laughs> is the above actual English professor. Right, right. But this is conforming to a more medieval Icelandic model or slash medieval right. Christian model of storytelling, in which mm-hmm. that. Th- those models of character. Right, it's a good thing to eventually submit, yeah. Not only is it a good thing to eventually submit, but what we saw about your character before translates when you convert and you still are going mm-hmm. to be very strong-minded, very firm, better than others. So right. Right. I, I think it, it, it works logically and explains itself uh, all for us right there. But uh, yeah. All right. I'm not sure I'm buying in. Well, you should. Uh, I do feel like... Especially with given what we've seen of him to this point, I do feel like we're being shown that Kjartan is has a little bit of growing up to do. Mm. I mean, what if you want. So is that it? Is Olaf done with his speech? Oh, no. No, there's actually more. Uh, he goes on to say, I expect that entire ship's crews will turn up for baptism on the day that you decide to convert. I do think you'll leave Norway with a better religion than you came here with. And I think that your friends and family in Iceland will take your example to heart. But, for now, you can leave this meeting in peace and proceed in safety. No one will force you to adopt Christianity for the time being. For God has said Hmm. that he wishes no man to be forced to turn to him. That that for the time being is a little ominous. (laughs) Yes. Uh, That's quite a speech, though. It's a long speech. Now, um, in this story, that all sounds plausible. But this version of Olaf, the calmly patient Christian, this is definitely not the universally agreed upon version of his character. No. There's another version of him. A more murdery, eyeball gouging, (laughs) burning people in their farmhouses, King Olaf. (laughs) Yeah, not not a guy that says God doesn't want people to be forced to turn. Not that guy. Right. He feels very comfortable with forcing the issue yeah he's the guy who executed a pagan by pouring molten gold down his throat remember that yeah yeah that guy mm-hmm. that olaf uh i think we've mentioned before that the norwegian kings and queens change a great deal from one saga to another and olaf is one of the most chameleon like of the bunch well it all depends on what the saga author is trying to accomplish through olaf right absolutely yeah. now we're definitely getting the lawful good olaf in this saga and He's almost the only Norwegian present who favors showing mercy. His men are all grumbling that Kjartan should die for threatening the king. In fact, this seems to be a, a show of or a sign of weakness in Olaf that he's not confronting and killing this guy. Well, yeah, and tempers are starting to fray on both sides, and it's really only Olaf's authority that helps keep the peace. Mm-hmm. And it kind of puts Kjartan and friends in a bind. Uh, they've built their entire position around valorous resistance to a tyrant. 
Meanwhile, the alleged tyrant is essentially telling them he's fine with it and offering around milk and biscuits. Yeah, next it'll be the comfy chair. Nasty. Uh, if, if we do want to read this as consistent with Olaf's character elsewhere, we could, I suppose. I mean, this could all be clever psychological gamesmanship. Yeah, but it's not. No, but it could be. Uh, at the very least, it somewhat disarms Kjartan, who compliments the king for his forbearance. But he does follow that by saying that he absolutely does not intend to take up a new religion on this trip. Not unless his esteem for Thor and Odin remains low after he's been back in Iceland for a year. See? It's working. Yeah, it is interesting. He's already admitting that he's lost faith in the Norse gods. Or at least that he's open to it. Olaf's... Well, right. I think, you know, Olaf is playing evangelical three-dimensional chess here. <laughs> uh, anyway, the king makes a snarky comment about how Kjartan clearly puts more faith in his own sword arm than in Thor and Odin. And the meeting breaks up. Mm-hmm. Now, afterward, the king's advisors urge him to take a harder line against the Icelanders. And after a while, he gets irritated with them and says that Kjartan and the pagans are conducting themselves better than many Christians. Such men are worth waiting for. Are they, though? I suppose it depends on how long he has to wait. But again, this is a pro-Iceland and pro-Iceland slash Norwegian kind of story. So, Right. So he doesn't have to wait that long, actually. <laughs> Part 27. An Icelandic Christian in a King Olaf's court. Or, possibly, King Olaf's Christian in an Icelandic court. I don't think it's an Icelandic but every you know every part is. of that works now that i think about that <laughs> yeah wow well good on you john so uh, as the winter passes olaf is making all sorts of changes to nidaros he has a church built and a number of public improvements made filling in potholes that sort of thing well you know all throughout europe christianity just it brings prosperity exactly and that, literacy and that's the, that's the message he's sending historically one of norway's strongest arguments for conversion in the north was economic Right. Christian yeah. markets were I don't closing think, I don't their think harbors. Norway's alone. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Christian markets all over Europe, they're closing their harbors to pagan merchants. So the easier yeah. business decision eventually was to convert. Sure, yeah. Converting meant enjoying membership in a community of Christian traders and merchants. And urban renewal, apparently. Uh, mm-hmm. It's easy to forget because the sagas are so full of social life and colorful gatherings. It's easy to ignore that Iceland is essentially all rural. It's only in moments like this we see actual urban life in the sagas. And, yeah, and it's in, it's incidental. We it's totally incidental. It. Uh, the point of the story is that uh, Olaf's trying to convert people by other means. But I love the idea that this detail, that pork barrel projects are part of his campaign to sell Christianity in Norway. Yeah, he's not limiting himself to public works either. He gives speeches, sermons, really, mm. in town. And on Christmas Eve, mostly out of boredom, Kjartan, Botley, and Alfred Troublesome Poet take their crews to go and listen to one of Olaf's speeches. And on the way back to their ships, one of the men asks what everyone thought of the speech, especially since it's supposed to be an important day on the Christian calendar. And Kjartan says, I know the king to be a remarkable man, but I was never so impressed by him as I was today. It begins Uh to seem to me that our welfare depends on accepting this new religion of his. For my well, part, well, well. I'd convert right now, except that it's late, and the king's probably eating supper. We'll <laughs> need a whole day to baptize all of us, so we'll approach him about this in the morning. See, as you're reading that, as mm-hmm. I read that, um, 
That's a really quick turnaround yeah, from is. from the the whole better dead than Christian uh, whole approach to things yeah. to uh, now. Um, I think I would like to convert to Christianity. Um, all in the span of a few weeks, mm-hmm. it's a pretty sharp left turn there, character. Well, that's more or less what people like uh, Louis Jensen are talking about. That this whole episode is pretty out of character for Kjartan, or at least that the saga doesn't seem to have a firm grip on his character at this point in the saga. Mm. But it's obviously serving a different narrative demand. Uh, Kjartan needs to end up Christian because of the way this story is shaping up. But we also need to establish his bona fides as a proto-nationalistic Icelandic hero. So he can convert as long as he also mumbles about burning the king to death. I, he's got sort of, s- yeah. Both sides. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the author is kind of telling a macro story here as well as his primary narrative. But the balance is a bit off, I think. Uh, scholars love to praise this saga for its realism, but it feels like this section is sacrificing plausible character development in the service of a larger historical narrative. Yes. Yeah. Either Charton's behavior is way outside the norm for him, or he's a social chameleon constantly fashioning himself to answer his current needs. Well, maybe this is why old Halfred is hanging around a bit in this section. Old troublesome poet himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Halfred's almost the archetype of the type that Kjartan's playing to now. The resistant Icelander holding off on conversion in King Olaf's court. Mm. That guy. Now, periodically reminding us that Halfred is another of the ringleaders of this knot of Icelanders is almost a shorthand for the arc of Kjartan's time in Norway. Absolutely. Uh, so, okay. Kjartan's ready to convert, and apparently because he is, so is everybody else. Uh, Kjartan is mm-hmm. the kind of guy who assumes that everybody else will just do whatever he does. He waits for the king the next day and tells him to get a big barrel of holy water ready because the entire Icelandic <laughs> crowd at the docks is ready to join up. That is literally what he tells him. <laughs> uh, but Olaf just smiles and says he's already getting things ready because, as we all know, He's got spies all over the Icelander ships and knows everything that they talk about. Right. And uh, and that's that. Kjartan, Botley, and Kalf Asgjorsson and their crew are all baptized that morning. And Holfred is actually baptized two days later in the presence of the king himself. Job done. Mm-hmm. Not quite done. Things get a little more complicated at this point. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. So Kalf and Kjartan decide to make a trip to England to take advantage of what they've heard are favorable markets there. But when they bring this up to the king, he doesn't care for the idea at all. I'll give you this choice. You can travel to Iceland this year to try and convert the people there to Christianity, either by argument or force. If you think it's too difficult to do that, you are not going anywhere. You could stay here, where you're better off serving noble men than you would be as some filthy merchant. Yeah, and there's the hook in the gift. Mm -hmm. That by force option is interesting. Suddenly Olaf's back to being the high-handed and occasionally violent evangelist we know from other sagas. And it doesn't stop there. We're well into a familiar story here, the conversion of Iceland. Uh, But Mm -hmm. Kjartan refuses the job of missionary. I do not wish to set myself up against my kinsmen. I imagine that my father and the other chieftains will be less resistant to your bidding if I am here in your hands and enjoying your hospitality. Hmm, I think I see where this is going. Uh-huh. All of this feels like a very good plan to Olaf. And so he sends a different man as his representative. Uh-huh. A hot-headed priest 
the one that the ladies love, a man that you know as Thongbrand. Yeah, we we've met Thongbrand before. <laughs> that was the weakest whistle. I know. I, I, I'm I'm a little dry in the lips. Ooh, maybe sip that gin a little bit a little bit more. Mm. There you go. Just edit that one in. Yeah, right. I'm not editing Jack. <laughs> Your uh, weak whistle's gonna stand as it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, boop, boop, boop. yeah. We we've, we've met Thongbrand before. Yeah, he's not easy to forget. Uh, we covered Thongbrand's story in our saga briefs on the conversion of Iceland, and I'd say he's what we call chaotic good. Yeah, I mean, hurricanes are chaotic. Thangbrand is... Actually, that's hyperbolic. He's chaotic. He's just a violent person with a short fuse. I mean, he's not an obvious choice as a missionary, especially if you're yeah. a peaceful fellow. I mean, as a crusader, though... <laughs> well, sure, yes, as a crusader. Well, he makes sense if you got to bang is, some heads together. Yeah, now that Olaf's reverting to the guy who has eyes ripped out of people's heads for resisting Christianity, Thangbrand makes more sense as a representative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a missionary with a sword. Uh, the, the brief version is that Thangbrand's voyage is a mixed bag. Um, mm-hmm. He does manage to convert a few important people, but he also irritates almost everyone. Like, really everyone. And Thangbrand yeah. also ends up killing two people. But the brief version is all we get. We don't get much detail. Yeah, I mean, in, in Christni Saga, we get stories about sorcerers trying to kill him, uh, poets mocking him. All that good stuff, and you can um, go back to our saga brief to get it. Yeah, uh, this is the bare-bones version. It's pretty close to the version Ari the Learned includes in his lending a book. Yeah, so the, the lack of detail is the reality of memory about the visit. Uh, the stories come later, in Christney and in Njal Saga and so on. Right, so back to Thangbrand. He's a divisive figure, to put it kindly. Mm. And so it's not surprising that the island starts dividing into Christian and pagan camps. Both sides are preparing for violence... Against the other. Now, Thangbrand's not so much an agent of chaos as a carrier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's actually not trying to destroy the place. It's just his personality. Right. Uh, and he eventually does get thrown out of Iceland and has to report back to Olaf that people are probably even less likely to convert now. And, and oh yeah, mm-hmm. he may have started a war. Uh, <laughs> oops. And while yeah. Olaf antagonizes the Icelandic aristocracy... Kjartan's gone full Stockholm Syndrome, but in Norway. Mm. Neither of Syndrome. <laughs> Precisely. He actually suggests making himself a captive to try and force the Icelandic aristocracy into accepting Christianity. Now, this really is a strange part of the saga. Especially since this is just a, a thin coat of paint. Uh, Kjartan mm-hmm. is a captive, whether he says so or not. He's just acknowledging reality and trying to claim agency over it. Name it to claim it, Kjartan. That's yeah. my advice. Uh, there's an allegory at work in this part of the saga. Uh, the Icelanders on the docks refuse to convert, avoid direct conflict with the king, essentially become hostages, then accept conversion when it's offered with the window dressing of personal choice. Mm-hmm. And now Olaf is moving to reiterate the process with Iceland as a whole. Exactly. Over the next year or so, there's a series of people crossing the North Sea to try to negotiate a settlement, but not a lot of progress is made. Another winter yes. passes. So, with the only development at this point being that we've well, got... Well, now, now, Kjartan and Boltley have been stuck in Norway for literally years now. Yup. 
Uh, and in this second winter, the only event of significance is that another Icelander, Sverting Runolfsson, is actively forbidden from going to Iceland. So it's pretty clear that nothing's changed. Oh, that's so annoying for the Icelanders. <laughs> so <laughs> last winter, Kjartan and Boltley were stuck in Norway because they refused to convert. Now they're stuck because they did convert. Yeah. The world is mm. definitely more complicated than the boys from Loxerdal thought it was. And then the third summer. Olaf sends a group of Icelanders home as a goodwill gesture along with a few men he's deputized as the latest batch of missionaries to Iceland. Yeah, I mean, the most prominent of his emissaries are a pair of Icelanders, uh, Hjalti Skeggesson and Gizur the White. I've heard of these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hjalti's a legendary figure for his defamation of the Norse gods. Um, this is the poet who jumped up on a rock at the old thing and declared that either Odin or Freya was a whore, but that he didn't want to say anything bad about the gods. Uh, uh-huh. It's a apophysis at its finest. Yeah. I did a bit of digging around on old Hjalti uh, back when we covered him for the saga briefs on the conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit of an odd case. He was only sentenced to minor outlawry, which is pretty lenient given his offense. And Richard North actually builds a lot on the fact that Hjalti was accused of goldgau, uh, which means blasphemy, but mm-hmm. doesn't seem to mean serious blasphemy. I got to say, I'm mildly astonished at the idea of non-serious blasphemy. Sort of oh, God damn it, John. You, you should know the difference. <laughs> just just gosh darn it. Uh, casual blasphemy. <laughs> uh, but no, that, that fits with some of the conclusions that you and I have come to before about, about how seriously people in Iceland weren't taking their big R religion in the pre-Christian era. Right. Yeah, well, I think that's fair. Of course, there's the political angle as well. People can see which way the wind's blowing on the whole conversion question. Mm-hmm. And showing leniency to a convert who has links to the king of Norway, it's probably no bad thing, politically speaking. Well, the law might treat this as a minor offense, but the pagan Icelanders weren't too happy about Hjalti's blasphemous slam poetry. And so he is outlawed for three years. Right. And we can also we can use that to set the timeline for this part of the saga. Right, right. Hjalti's exile comes the year before Iceland converts, so we're probably in 998, 999 at this point. Right, which means, on top of everything else, everyone's got to worry about resetting their longships to avoid Y1K problems. Uh, (laughs) And now, that's a a joke that nobody under 40 is going to understand. Hey, you know, Uh, it's a funny one to to us. Uh, And now Olaf sending Hjalti back as an emissary of the Norwegian king. Don't buy any green bananas, Hjalti. No, 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 no. He's going as Olaf's man now. True, but not everyone has that option. Olaf designates four chieftain sons to stay with him as hostages. Sverting Rolson, Kolbein, the son of uh, Thor Freidskothi, and um, Hotlord, the son of Gudmund the Powerful, and uh, Kjartan Olafsson. Yeah, I mean, he really keeps the cream of the crop. Right? The men whose fathers are well-connected enough to sway public opinion on conversion. Or at least Olaf hopes they are. Sure. Uh, for one example, uh, Sverting Runolfsson's father, Runolf of Dahl, uh, he's the guy who prosecuted the case against Hjalti for God slander. Of course, there is one name that wasn't on that list. Uh-huh. A little man we haven't heard from in a while. Mm-hmm. A little man called Abotli Thorlikson. Part 28. A little Butley told me. 
Well played. Thank well you. played. Uh, so it turns out that the son of a disgraced former employer of Hebridean sorcerers, not really a valuable bargaining chip. Yeah, go figure. So Butley is able to get a place in Hjalti's ship going back to Iceland in that third summer. Well, now the plot thickens. Mm-hmm. He is off to Iceland, leaving Kjartan behind as a follower slash guest slash hostage of King Olaf. The old FGH. <laughs> follower guest hostage, the FGH. <laughs> yeah, before he goes, he and Kjartan have a little chat about what to tell the folks back home. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever read a or listened to our Warrior Poets Sagas uh, episodes, mm-hmm. you know exactly how this is all going to play out. <laughs> Suddenly, things aren't quite so rosy between these two. Uh, Boltley says, Look, I'd wait for you over the winter if I thought there was a chance you'd be freer to travel next summer, but I'm fairly sure this king is determined to keep you here, Kjartan. I don't know about that. Besides, I take it for granted that you remember little that would entertain you in Iceland when you've been so busy here amusing yourself, conversing with the king's sister Ingeborg. Hmm? Whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> Don't go saying things like that. You can give my regards to all our kinsmen and friends. Uh-huh. So, Ingebjörg, John. Yeah, Ingebjörg. Uh, Olaf Tryggvason did have a sister named Ingebjörg. She's mentioned in a mm-hmm. few sources, including in Olaf's saga and the Heimskringla. Uh, but there isn't a ton of information about her. Uh, we do know that she married Earl Ronvald Olfsson of Sweden, she had two sons who became earls in Kievan Rus. Uh, oh, side note, uh, Ronvald was a nephew of Sigrid the Haughty, who we talked about on Rex Factor a while back. But if she's married to a Swedish earl, why is she busy flirting with handsome Icelanders in Norwegian fishing villages? Something about this is a little fishy. Well, I mean, clearly the problem here is that we've got... Swedish fishy. <laughs> yeah, I said it. I despise you. <laughs> anyway, I mean, you do you do the most shameful things on this podcast. Give really, me I think Swedish fishy is going to take a little bit of beating. Um, all right. I well, mean, the thing is, she's clearly not married to Ronvald yet, or at least that's the conceit of this saga. It does seem timeline wise like she ought to be in Sweden, <laughs> but this yes. this author clearly wants her here. Uh, I found a couple of attempts to make sense of this timeline, but I didn't find anything that was convincing. So, Kjartan's been getting to know her while she's been visiting her big brother Olaf, is that? Apparently. I mean, Kjartan doesn't actually deny being friendly with her. He just tells Boltley to shut his trap about it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But there's more than a hint in that conversation that Boltley either doesn't approve of Kjartan flirting with royalty or wants to push Kjartan into formally renouncing his interest in Gudrun back home. Well, I mean, Gudrun's name never really comes up between them, but yeah, I think under the surface, she's on both of their minds. And that is the end of the dynamic duo, at least for now. Boltley boards ship and sets off for Iceland, and Kjartan remains in captivity slash camaraderie with Olaf. And Ingebjörg. I thought we agreed we weren't going to talk about that. (laughs) Well, Boltley never agreed to anything like that. Uh, he's going to sing like a canary as soon as he gets he, home. He's He's got to do something about this. Tweet, 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 Kjartan. <laughs> so, Boltley sails back to Iceland with uh, Hjalti and Gizur the White, but he ditches them as soon as his boots hit the shore. Uh, the rest of the ship's crew heads off on a speaking tour, 
and eventually travels to the All Thing to make another play at converting Iceland. But Baltly isn't a religious fanatic, he just wanted to lift home. So he rides to Olaf Peacock's farm and spends some time there, passing along the news that Kjartan is safe, but stuck in Norway for the present. Yeah, but once he delivers those messages, he travels to the farm in Laugar, where Guthrun is living with her father. She has a whole lot of questions about where they've been and what they've been doing. And Boltley tells her, Well, as for Kjartan, his is a fortunate position. He is a king's man now, and no one is higher in favor with the king. But it wouldn't surprise me if we saw little of him at home in the coming years. I I love you. I guess, yeah, I guess in this conversation I'm going to have to take on Guthrun, despite my voice. Yeah. So here it comes. Uh, Guthrun asks, Is there some reason you say that, beside the friendship between Kjartan and the king? And Boltley just spills the entire vat of beans. Well, I suppose the other news is the friendship between Kjartan and Ingeborg, the king's sister. It's my thinking that the king would rather see these two married than allow Kjartan to leave Norway. Oof. So, singing like a canary was not an understatement. How ridiculous is this, <laughs> that Gudrun would ever believe that King Olaf would want to marry his sister to this man from Iceland? No, 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 no. He's, he's very, very come handsome. Come now. He's very, well, in Iceland he's very well known, but come on now. Get out of here. What does he bring to the table? Well, isn't that nice? Only the best of wives is a fair match for Kjartan. And then she turns around and stalks away, looking angry enough that, as the narrator tells us, other people suspected she hardly thought the news as good as she pretended. (laughs) (laughs) You can't do that. That's a major violation of the friend code. Yeah, red card for Botley. Yeah, but all's fair in love and war, apparently, especially sagas using formulas like Mm -hmm. this. And uh, speaking of which... It's time for a shocking, John, a shocking reveal. Are you ready for a shock? Shock it to me. Boltley is also in love with Guthrie. (gasps) I am am not that shocked. (laughs) I mean, Boltley's been quiet up to this point in the saga, but he's finally out of Kjartan's shadow, right? And we finally have that third part of our love triangle that's been building. Right, and it really isn't altogether surprising. Uh, Botley was with Kjartan on all those trips to the hot springs, all those visits to Gudrun. He's significantly mm-hmm. quieter than Kjartan, but it now seems that he had a reason for all those visits besides being a good wingman. That is terrible wingmanning. <laughs> this is wingman treason here. This is this not what you do. Uh, and he's not wasting any time. Uh, before the summer's over, he's asking Gudrun about marriage, but obliquely. Obliquely's right. He's, he's not proposing. He just asks what she would say if he were to propose, ah, maybe. The proposal subjunctive. It's a <laughs> yes. rare verb form, mostly used when trying to find a date to the junior high school dance. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You're a very beautiful woman, I want to say, but um, if I were to ask you to go to the prom with me, uh, would you maybe say yes or would you say no? I'm not asking you, of course. I'm just as a hypothetical. I feel like you're doing like Woody Allen the Viking right now. It wasn't really Woody Allen. It was just a weak sounding person. That's all I was going for. Which, I mean, fair. Yeah. 
Well, Gudrun isn't fooled by this clever ploy. She immediately says, There's no point in even discussing that, Botley. I'll marry no man as long as Kjartan is still alive. Well, it's my guess that you'll have to sit there alone for a few years then, if you decide to wait for Kjartan. I mean, he could have asked me to give you a message, if he had thought it important enough. Damn! Well, I mean... Baltley's going for broke here. Yeah, he is. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong, John. Kjartan didn't say anything about Guthrun. In fact, okay. I don't remember Guthrun's name coming up yeah. in the entire three years, four years, whatever they've been but there. There might be a reason for that. I mean, there's a level of subtext going on in this part of the saga. Kjartan wants Guthrun. Guthrun wants Kjartan. Baltley wants Guthrun. Joni loves Chachi. Charles is in charge. I'm pretty sure some of that's not right. Uh, no, no. Uh, the point is that Kjartan knows uh, how Butley feels, or he might know how Butley feels. Even if he just suspects it, he'd be a fool to send a message to Gudrun with Butley as the messenger. He could write a note. And have Butley toss it into the waves or read it as soon as they're out <laughs> of sight. Give somebody else. No, no. There's a whole ship of no, Icelanders no. always going back and forth. Nope. Come on. Maybe send a carrier pigeon. This is Iceland. A carrier puffin then. Better. But no. An African swallow. Right. <laughs> not a European <laughs> swallow? Uh, Kjartan is not fool enough to send a message with Butley. Uh, think back to the warrior poet sagas. Right. Uh, your man, Bjorn the Hitterlal champion, trusted Thor Kolbinson with a message to the beautiful Odney Isle Candle. How'd that turn mm-hmm. out? It ended with Thor betraying him and marrying Odni himself. Fair. But now that Botley's sprung this on Guthrun, there is a bit of awkwardness between them. Ah, just a bit, yeah. But Botley's not done yet. He goes and talks to his uncle Olaf about backing the proposal. Technically, he hasn't proposed yet. He passed her a note in study hall. I don't know what else you expect. He asked if she would say yes Yes. if he did ask her. Subjunctive! You know, not the same thing. (laughs) <laughs> Subjunctive proposal. It's not a proposal. Uh, but yeah, actually, Boltley is far better at asking for help than he is at proposing. He does approach Olaf and says, I feel that I am a man grown now and that it's time for me to marry. I want to ask your advice, since I know that most men will be eager to listen to what you say. Look at him buttering him yeah, up. Seriously. He's like, you're the wisest. You're the wisest man in all of Iceland. I imagine most women would find you more than a fitting match. But I also imagine you wouldn't have brought this up if you hadn't already decided where it should come down. Well, s- since you mention it, I, I don't expect to have to look for a wife in far off districts as long as we have such fine women nearby. Ooh. In fact, I would like to ask for the hand of Gudrun Oswif's daughter. Uh, I want no part of that matter. You know as well as I do that the affection between Kjartan and Gudrun is spoken of everywhere. But if you can work it out with her father Oswif, I won't stand in your way. Have you actually brought this up to Gudrun? Um, yes. Subjunctively, sort of. <laughs> She seemed a little reluctant, but but I think it'll be her father who decides on an answer to that question. You know, you get the impression that Butley hasn't spent enough time getting to know this woman he's trying to marry. Well, one thing we're going to learn about Butley is that thinking isn't his strong suit. Mm-hmm. Besides, if 
he'd really looked into Gudrun's story, he'd probably have learned about that prophecy foretelling her of her four marriages <laughs> and maybe backed off a little bit. She's had two husbands already, and number three... Yeah, husband number three is doomed to die violently. But again, it's not, not like she's good. advertising that. No. Although I doubt that's the kind of thing that you could keep quiet in Iceland. The old gossip grapevine is everywhere. So, okay. Butley now approaches Osvif, and Osvif tells him that Gudrun is a widow and can answer for herself. But when mm-hmm. Butley explains that he already tried that, Osvif decides to get himself involved. Well, he really he really didn't. Well, he thinks he did. But Osvif's whole Gudrun can speak for herself posture goes out the window almost immediately once he learns that she's said no. Because Butley yeah. is a desirable son-in-law. Well, so is Kjartan. But Kjartan's not here. Yeah, and he's been gone literally for years. Osvif's a pragmatist, and as far as he's concerned... A Butley in the hand is worth a cart in the bush. <laughs> you planned that out how many months in the head? Hey, come on. Is preparation a crime? Is it? Uh, so, Osvif brings the suit to Gudrun and pressures her to accept. Uh, she resists, but ultimately she stops short of openly defying her father. And so the marriage is arranged. Yeah. The two of them are married that winter, and although Gudrun shows little affection to Butley and makes it clear that she's not in the marriage by choice, this is where she is now. Yeah. And still, there's no Kjartan and no message from Norway. No, so. but there is big news right at home in Iceland. Uh, Hjalti and Gizur have succeeded in their proselytizing and their legal maneuvering. The law speaker has spoken, and Iceland has officially adopted Christianity as the religion of the island. And I think that fairly major piece of news is where we're going to stop the story for this time. Mm-hmm. Major changes are afoot in Iceland. Gudrun and Boltley are making an unexpected match, and Kjartan is still trapped in Norway. Right. I mean, this is suddenly genre shifting here, right? As we've been suggesting all along, the pieces are now all in place for a warrior poet saga, right? a saga romance. Yes, and as we know, those famously have happy endings for everyone, right? <laughs> sure. Let's go with that. Yeah, Kjartan and Ingeborg, Boltley and Gudrun. Works out great every time. You know. Uh, so, uh, John, mm-hmm. you uh, you like these summonses. This is, yeah. And um, you want to summons someone today? Yeah, funny you should ask. Summons to the court. Olaf Tryggvason, King of Norway. The king? Can, can we do that? Do what? Can we summons a Norwegian king, John? Uh, I mean, I do not recognize any national or maritime boundaries on our domain and authority. So, yeah. <laughs> but he is uh, elected by God himself. I, I don't I don't recall seeing a ballot box. <laughs> it's, myst- it's the mystery, John. There you go. Uh, but all right. I mean, Olaf was, I think, an obvious choice in this episode to talk about. It's so interesting. And yet you questioned my methods. Obvious doesn't mean correct, John. Hey, we made the rules. We make the loopholes. So, Olaf. Honestly, I don't know what the rules of the summonses are. I think we just choose themes (laughs) and people that were... I should say you. You choose themes and and people that that you're interested in. And then I participate. It was all about gaining and seizing power, Andy. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, It also has something to do with effort. Um, and making extra and work for myself. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But uh, um, with Olaf, uh, who we've met many times, mm-hmm. uh, there are a few things to talk about here. Oh, yeah. This is. Uh, let me start by quickly outlining why I want to talk about him. And you can add anything I miss. 
Olaf is arguably the second most important king for the story of Saga Age Iceland. Hmm, interesting. After, uh, I assume, Harold Fairhair, right? Uh, yeah. In the narrative past, Harold Fairhair is the reason Iceland exists. Olaf is the reason it becomes Christian. Or, mm-hmm. to think about it another way, Harold is the reason Icelanders split from Norway. And Olaf is the figure who begins the long process of reintegration. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, of course, we could also see Olaf as a more of a continuation of Harold, depending on how we look at mm-hmm. it. They're they're both engaged in a long-term project of Norwegian expansionism, right? Harold mm-hmm. establishes the authority of Norway on the Norwegian peninsula. Olaf accelerates and expands the influence of Norway by adopting and promoting Christianity. That's also true, yeah. Uh, and I think that makes even more sense if we then extend the timeline a little further to include Knut the Great. Uh, Knut's the 11th century Danish and Norwegian king. He builds a North Sea empire that covers multiple land masses as far west as the British Isles. Yeah. He's also the son of Sven Forkbeard and the grandson of Harold Bluetooth. Pretty good pedigree. And those kings also had expansionist tendencies. Well, sure. But Olaf's expansionism, or the way he goes about it, is a huge part of the Icelandic story. And the way he's portrayed in sagas and chronicles depends a great deal on who's doing the telling. Right. So, in some sagas, as we said earlier in the podcast, Olaf comes across as a tyrannical autocrat, uh, a spiritual descendant of the most negative depictions of Harold Fairhair. Right, but Olaf's also pushing a new religion, which adds a different spin to his motivations. But ultimately, yeah, he's primarily motivated by power. Yes. And in other texts, Olaf is a model of Christian kingship. Fair-minded, patient, generous, devout, willing to show up in the uh, moment of emergency and mm-hmm. save you from an undead uh, Viking. That's right. Uh, and in some versions, he's both. Right? He's a religious zealot who uses his considerable secular power to force a new faith on the people across the north of Europe. Uh, and, of course, sometimes he plays at being a good Christian in a more allegorical way. Doing good deeds, mm-hmm. interacting with others, more or less anonymously, that kind of thing. Like the swimming slash drowning contest with Kjartan. Exactly, yeah. Now, we have seen him do these odd anonymous stunts before. Remember, he showed up in Halfred's saga wearing a green cloak and calling himself Anchor Fluke. Oh, yeah. Yes. Anchor Fluke was Olaf's heroic alter ego who <laughs> rescues incompetent sailors from rocky shoals. So... This is just Olaf's thing, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. And he's not even the only king to do this kind of thing. Uh, Saint Olaf, the 11th century king, it's a different Olaf, same country, shows up in mm-hmm. Volsathauter as a cloaked man named Grim. He's on a secret <laughs> mission to stop the cultic worship of a horse penis. Oh, Volsathauter, you wacky, wacky story, you. So yeah, it's kind of a weird sideline for a king, but there you go. Yeah, so which Olaf do you think we have here? The religious fanatic, the despot, the good Christian, or the superhero in disguise? Well, that's what's interesting, because he's a bit of all of the above. We already mentioned the lack of interiority in this section of the saga, but Olaf's changes in character seem to me to reflect there are a variety of stories about him current in Iceland in the 13th century. Since we're throwing all this Olaf literary spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks, we can also look for related literary tropes and other borrowings. For example? 
Well, how about the scene where Olaf confronts the Icelanders about the whole let's burn down the house thing? This really couldn't be stranger from a saga point of view. We get set for a display of Icelandic stubbornness and wit against the brute power of the Norwegian king, and instead, Olaf is the more mature, more patient, and undeniably, the smarter and more clever figure. Kjartan and Butley are left playing a bad hand, and playing it badly, and the king gets everything he wants. They even pledge oaths of loyalty to him not long after that, and Mm -hmm. Olaf treats them generously and places them among his favorites at court. Yeah, it's like David versus Goliath, but Goliath is a well-read sophisticate with a big heart. Uh-huh, and David's a tantrum-throwing jerk. Yeah, <laughs> well, a handsome, popular tantrum-throwing jerk, but yes. Sure. I don't want to be a Christian. <laughs> now, I'm going to burn of... you down in your house at night, <laughs> right? How would you like that? <laughs> I'm going to TP your shed. <laughs> I like this version of David. That's really, that's a good voice for him. Um, Anyway, a lot of our assumptions about who to root for in this conflict are really undermined pretty thoroughly. Mm -hmm. This is about a kindly, almost parental Norwegian king who waits out the petulance of the pagan Icelanders and then praises them when they conform to his rules. Yeah, it's, it's like the inversion of a Thouter. Yes, yes, exactly. Icelandic short stories are often built around these smart, scrappy Icelanders outthinking Norwegian kings and earls. Yeah, especially the corrupt ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, I found myself wondering what someone like uh, Joseph Harris would make of this section. Oh, sure, Uh, yeah. Remember, Joseph Harris, I think we've mentioned him before, uh, especially in our intro to Thouters, uh, to our very first uh, saga short, I guess we probably talked about him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's a major figure in the development of criteria for the Thouter. Uh, what what do we do with a passage that seems to be intentionally playing with the motifs of a short story in order to put us in sympathy with the King of Norway? Yeah, I think the best we can do is treat this strictly as a conversion story without considering the nationalistic angle. Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be Christian ethos prevailing over pagan, not Norwegians outplaying Icelanders. Yeah. But it's not long before Olaf reverts to type. Well, but what's type, John? The The whole point of our conversation is that he's several different types, depending on what you're reading. Fair. I, I meant the high-handed and occasionally violent evangelist Olaf that we know from other sagas. Uh, so, for example, right, this is the moment where Olaf sends Thangbrand, a guy who we know from other sources has a history of killing people, and sure enough, he kills people. I mean, it's good to have things to depend on in life, John. Right, but somewhat predictably, Olaf then gets annoyed at Iceland over this. Well, right. From the outside, this looks pretty random, but it also looks like it might be a calculated move. So now he has an excuse to be mad at Iceland, like the entire island. Why'd you got to treat my missionary like that? Right, pretty much. Uh, He starts stroking his mustache and chuckling evilly while monologuing about how Icelanders are going to pay for this. Well, he really has changed in this chapter, apparently into a cartoon villain. Yeah, he's a he's a wear snidely whiplash. He's by by day he's a mild mannered Norwegian autocrat, but come the full moon and he begins tying Nell Fenwick's daughter to the nearest railroad track. Is that it? Are you good? You, you're oh, good. I could do an hour. I could do an hour on this, but well, okay, uh, go ahead. We should, we should move on. 
Uh, no, no. I'll give you an hour. We, it's, we can uh, keep going. It's it's darn near midnight here on the East Coast, and uh, some of us have to teach in the morning. Uh, well, you said you could on. do an hour. I just wanted to see if that's I true. I could. I didn't say I would. Oh, okay. The point is that the narrative is, I mean, I'll save you now. <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> I mean, that's just doing impressions of the show. That's true. That's a fair, fair point. Yes. That's, that has nothing to do uh, with King Olaf. But I don't have time for a one-hour analysis of the ways in which Olaf is or is not like Snidely Whiplash. <laughs> because, again, teaching in the morning. Ah, <laughs> uh, I see. I'll save my tortured analogies for my students. Thank you. <laughs> uh, no, the, the, what we're seeing here is that we revert back to... Uh, the standard story of Icelandic conversion, right? Olaf's in more mm-hmm. of an antagonistic role. Uh, he's yeah. more of a set piece than a person in this saga, I think. And we're getting a look at the the full range of his potential selves over the course of a few chapters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and now we're leaving him still holding the reins in Norway, with Kjartan in the golden handcuffs of be- being of being a champion of Olaf's court. But with Iceland having converted, we have to assume that the motive for keeping the flower of Icelandic aristocracy hostage is going to fade quickly. Right. Now is the time for the velvet glove, not the iron hand. Something like that? Something like that. All right. Very good. I'm not sure if we accomplished anything there, but you are dismissed, Olaf. We have seen you. Oh, we accomplished quite a bit. All right. Well, whatever we accomplished, I think that's enough for now. Uh, you do have to teach in the morning, as do I. Um, a little history of the English language for the students. We're going to be Delightful. talking about uh, standardization and codification. Good, Good stuff. Times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we so, talked for almost two hours again. Um, <laughs> I don't know how we do this. Uh, the amazing part is people listen to it. Uh, I know we say this in most episodes, but thank you for listening to this thing. Uh, we enjoy making it, but it's deeply satisfying to think that there are people who are willing to learn about the sagas through this nonsensical format. That's right. And even if you're not learning about the sagas and you just use us to uh, help you fall asleep, uh, <laughs> to well, doze you know, off. we appreciate the effort that you put in and that you bring us with you into your bed. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm um, a happily married sp- man, Andy. Well, I didn't say it's it's more of a, you know, a platonic thing, I you see. know? I see. And speaking of uh, fun exchanges, <laughs> we'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments you might have about this episode or anything else we've covered. What do you think of Kjartan so far? Is Olaf really playing a three-dimensional chess or is he just written inconsistently? Right. Why did Gudrun submit to her father's wishes and marry Butley? And does Butley deserve a serious timeout for lying about Kjartan? Well... Was he really lying? Was Botley lying? You tell us. How do they tell us, Andy? Well, you can track us down on the usual social media. Email where we are Podcast at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram where we are Podcast. You can also drop us a line on Twitter where we are Pod, or best of all, join in on the unofficially official Discord page for Sagathing where people are up to all kinds of Saga-adjacent shenanigans. I do love a good shenanigan. Now, if none of those are to your liking, you can try buying several copies of Andy's new graphic novel of Airbridge Saga and laying them out in the shape of a simple message. I suggest the words Ghost Seal. Well, that's a lot of copies, and I love Ghost Seals. All yeah. right. We'll be back soon to learn what happens when Kjartan gets home from Norway to learn that his homeland has a new religion. And more importantly, 
he learns what Boltley and Guthrun have been up to while he's been away. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye for now. And hot, uh, hot door, hot door, um, hot door, hot. <laughs> See, this is why I just go with Haldor. Oh, hot door, hot, hot, hot door, hot door. No, you don't do both. Hot door, hot door, hot door. Hot door, the son of Goodman the Powerful, and uh, Kjartan Olafsson.